Welcome to Rumble Strip. Rumble Strip is sponsored by Honey Road, the best restaurant in Burlington, Vermont, at the corner of Church and Main. Here's head chef Kara Tobin. Yufka dough is this really thin, like very, very thin pastry um, that we stuff with like cheese and sometimes we'll soak it in custard and then bake it. And there's been moments where like I've made it here and I try it and I'm like, wow, that tastes just like what I had at this one shop on the side street in the Egyptian part of the market in Istanbul. Honey Road, eat, feel the love, feel the food, ethnography. Today I'm playing a show I made for Northern Woodlands Magazine. It's called Logging by Hand. Welcome. I've lost friends, yes. Yeah. Lost uh, Danny Champagne. He got killed in, killed in the woods. Pinned, I believe. He was young. Too bad. Why do you do this job? I guess I'm doing it because it's what I know how to do, basically. Yeah. That's David Ranclose. He's a logger in Colebrook, New Hampshire, up near Vermont's Northeast Kingdom. And his primary tools are a truck, a chainsaw, and a cable skitter. Mostly he works in the woods alone. Up until about 30 years ago, logging up in what was called the Champion Lands in the Northeast Kingdom was done with a chainsaw and skitter. Teams of loggers cutting by hand, pulling trees out of the woods with cables. Then in the early 80s, mechanized came in, feller bunchers and grapplers, equipment that's much bigger, much safer, and ten times faster than men with chainsaws. It's also a lot more comfortable. You can listen to the radio, you can turn up the heat. Now almost all of that industrial land in the great northern forest is logged this way, and a lot of cable skidding loggers up in that area have changed over to mechanized. But if you drive around in the kingdom, well, pretty much anywhere in rural Vermont and New Hampshire, you'll still see skidders parked in people's dooryards. You'll still see pickup trucks parked along the side of the road at turnoffs leading into the woods. You see these loggers working in smaller woodlots and residential woodlots, felling trees with chainsaws at 20 below, dragging cables through waist-deep snow. It's dangerous work, and they're a resilient lot, and they prefer logging by hand. The story is about them. Welcome. I grew up on a dairy farm, and we cut wood whenever we weren't doing something with the cattle. So from like five, six years old, I started uh, logging with my father, you know, just watching at first. By eight years old, he was teaching me to use hand tools, pulp hooks, cant dogs. By probably 12 or 13, I was running a chainsaw. And at the end of my high school, the uh, government bought the dairy farms in this area out. There was too much milk on the market, so they bought the dairy farms out. So we went to logging full-time. And him and I logged full-time until he passed away two years ago. Some people, when they're growing up, they have, like, their heroes. You know, they want to be a fireman or they want to... Like, my hero was, like, the lumberjack. You know, like, reading books and, like, they're standing next to these huge trees, you know, with their their pants they are like chopped off and they were in a spike boots. I don't know, like I was just so attracted to that being that person. I don't want to be like brag about it because who cares? But, um, it was, I was just naturally good at running a chainsaw and I would just, it just kind of came natural to me. I don't know. I, like I said, I don't think it's a choice for me. Yeah. 
I don't care if I have to dig a hole in the ground eight feet deep or if you put me up in the air 40 feet painting. Well, at the end of the day, as long as I get a paycheck. But I want to be outside. I don't want to be inside. So do not mind a hard day's work. It makes the beer taste better at the end of the day. My father was... He was the one that showed me how to do every single thing I, I learned. And probably the proudest day I had in the woods was one day I cut a tree that was... A, every tree is different, and it takes a lot of years of knowledge to know what a tree is going to do, you know, when you cut it. Every, everything, wind, uh, weather, leaves, just everything comes into cutting a tree. And I cut that tree, and I made it do something that was, was very skillful it was a quite an art to make it do what i wanted it to do when it hit the ground we stopped and he told me you're better than i am and that was a big day for me well i'll tell you if you don't have self-motivation then you're never going to make it in the logging industry so you know, when you look at the thermometer and it says 30 below, pour yourself an extra thermos of coffee, leave an hour or two earlier because the skitter probably isn't going to start, which means... Well, when you see, uh, like, old sap buckets grown into the tree, you say someone was here, you know, 100 years ago, and you, you, you respect it. You respect the woods that you're working in. I, I love the woods. And I love the trees, but I also love cutting the trees. So then you get your chainsaw. Like the, You've got to have a chainsaw. For instance, on a rainy day. And when you crank and crank and crank, and the thing won't start because it's froze, so what do you do? You, you stand up on the skidder tire. You stick it up on the roof where the exhaust pipe comes out, and you let the exhaust blow on um, it. So a forester five, comes minutes. in and marks and all the trees that they want the cut. Running. A lot of foresters use blue because a lot of... 40-year-old men can't see red very good. Me being one of them, I cannot hardly see red at all. But it's the sounds of trees crashing and then dead silence, the sound of a trucker coming in to get your wood and leaving with it. It's all, it's, it's almost what you live for. Well, finally, you get the saw running. And by that time, your fingers are so cold, you can't feel your fingers. So then you have to stick them on the exhaust pipe. Now you're talking 9, 30, 10 o'clock in the morning. And you still ain't got to hit your wood on the yard, and you, but you just, it's, it's in your blood. And there is a moment when the tree starts to fall. If you're in a forest, a thick forest, all the limbs are touching another limb that they weren't a second ago. So you've got a thousand limbs on a tree touching trees on both sides of them all the way to the ground. When the tree hits the ground, there's what's called throwback. The energy from the tree hitting the ground will throw sometimes large limbs back at you. So as you're backing away from the tree, you know, you're looking ahead, you're backing up. Things are falling, things are being thrown. The moment that this all happens, you have to be just aware of everything in your environment. You, you have to feel, you have to feel what is going to happen. Very seldom will you make a mistake in a dangerous situation. Most accidents that I have seen, and 
uh, one fatality I know of, it came in an easy situation. The big thing is not to get too comfortable doing it, you know, because I've found myself, if I'm in a hurry, I'll stop looking up. You know, I've got trees falling and no idea what it, you know, so I catch myself back up, pay attention to what you're doing again. You can get rushing and, and get ahead of yourself, and that's something you shouldn't do because that's usually when something goes wrong. But I don't know, I've, I've been lucky this far. I was cutting this balsam fir, and it had a lot of dead branches at the at the base, but it had a healthy crown at the top. It was a pretty good-sized balsam. And I always look up before I cut the tree. And so I made my notch, and I'm making my back cut. And usually I don't look back up. Usually I'm paying attention to my hinge and, and my back cut, making sure I don't overcut. And something on this particular tree told me to look back up. And I look back up the tree, and here come this porcupine. And he's probably five feet from my head, and he's barreling out of that tree. All I remember is I threw that chainsaw, and I just dove into the brush, and he hit the ground right where I was standing. If, if I hadn't looked back up, he would have landed on the back of my neck, and ah, that was a scary moment. He went his way, and I went back, got my saw, and went back to work. So, <laughs> Usually like cutting a, a spring pole, and a spring pole is like where you have a sapling that when you fell a tree, it like bends over, and it's got a lot of tension on it. It's just like it looks like a rainbow. Um, and when you cut them, they have wicked pressure, um, and that's where a lot of people get hurt as well. Um, and that just comes with knowledge of how to cut them. There's ways to cut them so they won't break like that. I'm sure that's where a lot of people get hurt, like homeowners out cutting firewood. I'm sure that's where they get hurt a lot, which is terrifying to watch. Somebody that doesn't know how to run chainsaw do it. Um, don't. <laughs> <coughs> yeah, I had one guy who was hurt pretty bad for me. He was running the cable skid. And my brother came over me and says, uh, uh, Warren got cut. I says, how bad? He's not too bad, I guess. He drove up, told me, fuel the skidder up, he's working tomorrow. Well, I went down to fuel the skidder up, and I looked at the skidder, and I went, oh, he's not working tomorrow. Stringy dried up blood. It was like a deep cut blood. Blood all over everything. Down by the pedals, where he works. Instead of going to the doctor, he went home first because he just bought a new pair of boots, and he weren't going to let him cut them off. He made his wife take them off because they ruined his last pair of boots when he got cut. Of course, they printed lost him in Cobra because he found printed blood to death. What he was supposed to do is go get another cutter and have them drive him to the hospital. Because that's where I sat there. I said, well, why didn't somebody take him? Well, didn't think he was that bad. He drove up here and drank a coffee with his window down visiting and wanted to get a fuel up. And just goes to show you. <laughs> he didn't want his new boots cut off. We always seem to be picked on the logger because you could do 99 good jobs and nobody knows you. But you do that one bad job, everybody knows you. And it doesn't have to be you. It could be another logger. Them loggers, you know, oh, look at the mess they left over here. Look at, you know, look at that hillside gone. And there are still loggers with bad reputations out there and there's a, they have a bad reputation for a reason. Um, I often look at a stand that's been logged say 15, 20 years ago and I'll 
judge the logger. I'll be like, oh, this logger didn't do a great job, mainly because like residual stand damage, like trees are marked up. A good logger doesn't mark up trees. They know how to fell trees. They they clean up the job well with water bars and cleaning up the landing off. That's my standard. So if I haven't, and I personally have a really high standard of that um, of my quality of work because that's my reputation. So I guess when I'm walking in the woods, I'm looking at quality of trees. I'm looking at, um, I'm pretty much just judging the last logger that was in there. <laughs> and when you're based on production, it's tough to do quality work because you're being paid by how much you get done. So it's difficult um, and you have to find that balance for sure. And the landowner and the forester in the community around, they have to be understanding of what the process is and how much it costs to work and the, the hazards. And they just need to understand that it can't be all be perfect. And there's plenty of good loggers out there that really are passionate about the woods. And, you know, they want to be stewards of the land. You know, you want to be able to go back there, hopefully yourself in your lifetime, and, and manage that forest all over again. And that's the fun of it. But, you know, you just when you go into a particular track of land and you cut it and take it all, you, you're not going to go back there. So it's just a nice feeling working with the landowners when you go in and you, and you work them tracks and, you know, you're on the land and you're visiting and it's a one-on-one. It, it, you're one-on-one. One man, one machine, one landowner. You don't have 15 guys running all over the woods. We made more money years ago because now we're trying to compete with mechanized, so that's making it very hard. For somebody by hand, anyways, I mean, you, you're, you got mechanized, can come and cut ungodly amounts of wood where by hand they can't. You're pretty much set. So it's all volumes now. The more, the better. And, and I get it. I really do. It's a fast world. Like, you know, it's just Zoom, you know. Get, get this done, out of here, move the next one. Out of here, move the next one. But as far as young people getting into it today with chainsaws, I don't think so. Those days are about gone. So it's it's not a manual labor world anymore. <laughs> I, I really don't see a, a future of, of hand work in the woods. The people won't do it. And now that a lot of us are getting older, we can't do it. But a small landowner can't have these big operations come into their property they just don't have the room it's they need a certain amount of money to be able to move all their equipment onto your property and do this work whereas i can move in a very small time if you can't afford to keep your land open you're going to have to sell it it's so the whole area is going to change because of losing a certain type of person my neighbor needed a roof for his house he asked me can you come up and cut enough so i can put a roof on my house this fall I went and cut enough so that he could pay for a roof. He can't go to the huge contractor down there and say, can you come cut me $900 worth of wood? You know, it's just impossible. That can't happen. So the small person like me is a service that people need. Between logging and famine, what, what would we have? There is nothing. Logging is the heart and soul of the North Country. There's like one thing I could tell people is how passionate some people can be about the woods. I mean, I always walk old jobs. 
I usually carry a shovel with me so I can kick out water bars that get most of the time it's from the landowner or somebody else driving a four-wheeler on them or something else and they never fix the water bar so I have to go back through um, just that's just for me um, like a peace of mind and I almost judge myself again you know as if, as if I'm judging somebody else that logged it I think it becomes almost like <laughs> almost like a child you know I'm in a job for two months and I'm there every day um, and I care for it you know and I really care about the work that's why I carry my shovel with me to make sure I'm maintaining it still. You've been listening to loggers David Ranclose, Tony Hibbard, Jim Welch, Michael Belknap, and Dana Field. Original music for this series is by Vermont musician Brian Clark. This show is part of the Resilient Forest series, produced by Northern Woodlands and first aired on Next, a weekly radio show and podcast about New England. The Resilient Forest series is supported by the Davis Conservation Foundation and the Larson Fund. Most of the loggers you heard are part of the landscape of the vast working forest of Vermont's Northeast Kingdom, the subject of a special report in the summer 2019 issue of Northern Woodlands Magazine. You can find that reporting and more about the nonprofit at northernwoodlands.org. Again, Rumble Strip is sponsored by the excellent people at Honey Road, the best restaurant in Burlington at the corner of Church and Main. Pretty soon we'll be getting the annual report from Leland. He just got his driver's permit, so he's taking me out for a drive this weekend over to Number 10 Pond. So that's coming soon. This is Rumble Strip. Thanks a lot for listening. <laughs>